0: Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for episode three of the Mindfulness Movement and Exercise Oh My podcast. I am Jen. It is just me today, and we are discussing mindfulness, what it means, a very brief history on it, and how it fits in this idea of movement. But before we get into all of that, A quick recap of last episode where we got to hang out with the delightful and incredibly passionate Chris Rufalo as we discussed the current state of physical education. Remember, Chris is a physical education teacher, she works with high school students. We talked about a lot of different things. You have a wide range of kids, you have a wide range of interests. What do the kids really need? And are they getting that from the current physical education curriculum? What happens if you give teenagers an opportunity to explore unconventional styles of movement, something outside of the traditional sports? What happens if you give them a ball and say, make up a game? What do you end up with? Do they become more interested? And if they become more interested, isn't that a good thing? Does that teach them something? A teenager's number one goal, particularly at that age, is social interaction. So how can you create an environment where social interaction occurs? And when I say social interaction, they care about their peer groups, right? So how can you create an environment where social interaction occurs along with the movement? And what is it that we really want kids to learn? What is it that the what is the actual goal of physical education? Remember this all started in the US as a way to prepare soldiers. But is that really the goal anymore? Remember I said that in 2009 there was some research that came out that was then corroborated in 2010 that exercise improves academics in a physical in a public education setting so if it improves academics couldn't we think that maybe it maybe it improves something else i don't know one of the stories she gave or one of the examples she gave was that often One of the other teachers blares music during his physical education class. And before we get into today's topic, take a moment, come into a comfortable seated position if you're not already. There's a chance you're already sitting while you're listening to this, particularly if you're driving. And I want you to listen to the noise. or the sounds, I shouldn't call it noise, listen to the sounds in the room that you're in, or the space that you're in. See if you can identify different tones, different pitches. And then take a moment to listen just a little bit deeper. See if you can listen for any vibrations that are occurring. And then go ahead and relax. So the sound that is always around us, Sometimes that's noise, sometimes it's an unwanted distraction. Sometimes it's not. I taught a similar exercise for a group of Navy professionals except that the example I was giving was that was to make the point that yes it was noise and one of them raised his hand and said, "My job is to listen for this stuff to make sure that we are safe." To me, The noise in the room is not noise. It's something that's worth paying attention to. And when he said that, I thought to myself, gosh, she's totally right. What I perceive as noise is going to be very different than what someone else perceives as noise. Which brings us into today's topic, which is mindfulness. In 2004, there was a paper, a uh, research paper that came out and said, we are in the th- and, and the author said, we're in the third wave of psychotherapy, which is encompassing mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And something else that's called acceptance and commitment therapy. Both of these therapies, both of these therapy techniques involve mindfulness. It's all around us. This is a term that most people have heard. There are apps to improve your mindfulness. Doctors mention the importance of mindfulness sometimes when they're working with patients who have, patients who have anxiety. It's a word that is thrown around without much thought. And it makes some people roll their eyes and it makes some people embrace it with a giant hug. But what exactly does the term even mean? And why do we care? The main reason anybody in the medical world cares about mindfulness is because it's linked to reduced activity of the default mode network. The default mode network is the internal noise That internal voice inside your head. And this internal voice can lead to lots of things like rumination, worry, and self-criticism, which can snowball into other things like anxiety or panic or high stress without getting too deep into the neuroscience or the physiology of this the very simplified explanation of how stress works that is often given. And as you will see in later episodes, like a lot of things, sometimes this has been simplified so far that it's stripped away some other important things related to stress. But the very simplified version that is often explained in terms of how stress works. You have these different things that lets you be, these different things that let the neurons in your brain be active, these different things that allow you to move, that allow your heart to beat, it's all regulated by different branches of your nervous system. The peripheral nervous system, which is everything other than your brain and spinal cord, is split into two different big branches. You have your autonomic nervous system, which is everything that controls the automatic parts of your being. And by automatic, I mean things like breath, I mean things like your heartbeat, I mean things like your digestion. And then you have the part of your nervous system that controls all your voluntary parts of your being. My ability to translate my words into speech, my ability to gesticulate and move my hands. Those are all voluntary movements. I chose to go for a run this mo—this morning. That was a voluntary movement. So these voluntary actions are controlled by this other branch of your nervous system. The branch of your nervous system that controls all this automatic stuff has, for the purposes of today, we're going to call it two different branches. There's one more that I'll mention just so you know that it's there. But, You have your sympathetic nervous system, which you can think of as your I'm awake and alive nervous system. It's the nervous system that has the part of your nervous system that controls all the hormones that give you, like, that pep, that get up and go, the I'm ready to seize the day. It's also the part of your nervous system that controls your fight or flight response. So you've got these, again, kind of different things going on. Then you have your parasympathetic nervous system, you can think of this as your relaxed and chill part of your nervous system, part of your nervous system that drops you down and makes you sleepy, the part of your nervous system that lets you sleep, the part of your nervous system that lets you digest. Different hormones or different, these these two aspects of your nervous system do different things to your hormones. Now, I've mentioned before that arousal is part of who we are. There are different amounts of arousal that we need for different tasks throughout the day. If I were in a low arousal state and I were talking really slowly and I didn't have much animation in my voice, That would be perfect for relaxation, but it might not be great for podcast listening, right? Now, conversely, if you are getting prepped to go into some really stressful meeting, listening to me talk about this stuff might not be the best choice. It might be difficult to focus. Your arousal level might be really high, right? So, again, we have these different amounts of arousal that we need for different things. Back to this idea of mindfulness. Sometimes what happens is the arousal gets revved way up. And it can be difficult to bring the arousal level down. Even though there's no imminent threat. When that happens, that can impact things like heart rate. Your heart rate can stay elevated. Rather than What it normally does throughout the day is it goes up a little bit, it goes down a little bit, it goes up a little bit, it goes down a little bit. If you go for a run, it goes up more than a little bit. It hangs out there for a while, and then you stop and it comes down. If you lift weight, it goes up for a moment, it goes down for a moment. Bigger swings than if you're just sitting here listening to me, right? This is your heart rate variability. Super normal. Again, heart rate is not... It's not supposed to stay at the same level all of the time. So if your arousal level is really high, too high for the task at hand, then your heart rate, just and this is just one physiological factor, is also gonna be really high. This, can also, this is gonna impact your breathing. So you've got these systems that are kind of ready, primed for a pretty big stressor and whether or not that stressor actually happens is up in the air. This can have long-term health effects. This can have effects on blood pressure. It can have effects on insomnia. It can have effects on a myriad of factors. So, enter mindfulness. One of the things mindfulness does in practitioners and we're going to talk in a minute about how the research on this isn't great and there are some negative aspects to this idea of a mindfulness practice I'm using air quotes one of the things that it does is it can bring things back into balance so the arousal instead of always being really high can start to match the task at hand. This is why we care. This is why the medical community cares. Let's put it that way. So where did this all come from? It started a very long time ago. And it started both in the West, Stoicism, which was a practice that took place during 160, well, it was actually started a little before this, but the Roman empire was one of the places where this stoicism practice began to take hold. 161 to 180 AD, there was a famous Roman emperor named Marcus Aurelius. And one of the things he said was those who fail to pay attention to their own thoughts and know their own own minds are bound to be unfulfilled in life. Stoic exercises involved learning to pay attention to and concentration of the present moment. In the East, Hinduism took hold 1,500 to 2,500 years ago. A quote from Hinduism is, strive to still your thoughts, make your mind one-pointed in meditation. The mind is difficult and difficult to restrain, but it is subdued by practice. Buddhism, which took hold between 400 to 500 BCE, one one of their tenets is, do not dwell in the past, Do not dream of the future. Concentrate the mind on the present moment. Before we go on, think about what I just said. And already you might start to see a pattern. Mindfulness is this idea of being able to control the mind. But you are more than just a mind. You are a body too. so mindfulness practices that only focus on the mind on trying to control the mind are they going to give you the outcomes that you're search- that you're trying to get to and this brings us to the semantic ambiguity of the word mindfulness when you start reading through different authors views of mindfulness you see a few different ideas emerge mindfulness can be consciously aware or present in any given moment it mo- mindfulness may refer to a particular meditation it may refer to an open med- open monitoring meditation a breathing meditation a body scan or mindfulness can be a mental faculty relating to attention awareness, memory, or discernment. So when authors are starting to look at this idea, when researchers are starting to look at this idea of mindfulness and the impact that it makes on a person, one has to ask, well, which definition of mindfulness are you going with? The the definition of mindfulness I use most frequently comes from just the dictionary dot com definition of mindfulness, which is very similar to the Merriam Webster's definition of mindfulness, and that is the quality or state of being conscious or aware. Now, to be conscious or aware. You can do that a lot of different ways. Yes, absolutely. You can do it via meditation. The definition of meditation, just so again everybody is on the same page, is to think deeply or focus one's mind for a period of time in silence or with the aid of chanting for religious or spiritual persons purposes, excuse me, or as a method of relaxation. So yes, you can absolutely accomplish mindfulness that way. However, This isn't going to work for everybody. Similar to what Chris was saying with the different types of students that she has, not everybody is going to resonate with stillness. This does not mean that they cannot find stillness. But if we're trying to learn how to be more aware, how to be more conscious, which allows us to pay attention. If this is our goal, then it's important to honor the fact that there are a lot of ways to do this. Mindfulness, again, as I said, it has Gained a lot of popularity, especially in the last decade. But one of the current kind of proponents of it in the West, who's driven a lot of the research behind it, is a man named John Kabat-Zim. And John Kabat-Zim has a PhD in molecular biology. In the 70s, he was a student of Zen Buddhism and Hatha Yoga. He created something called the mindfulness-based stress reduction. And MBSR is a comprehensive methodology that involves hatha yoga type movements. It involves breathing. It involves body scans. a A lot of different things. There's been research that has been done on this in the military. And they they altered a little bit of the protocol to try and fit the military a little more. But gosh, did they get a lot of pushback. And the reason they got bu- a lot of pushback is because the protocol takes a long time. Not everybody has a lot of time to devote to this concept of mindfulness, even if the outcome is improved stress reduction. And again, if we go back to this idea of arousal, we need a level of arousal to do certain aspects of our life really well. So maybe instead of trying to reduce stress, we try to optimize stress at the appropriate times and improve our awareness so that during periods when we don't need that arousal, we can let go of it. There is a term that is frequently used, again, in the research when people are studying the potential benefits of something like mindfulness, and that is interoception, intero oception. Interoception is your internal sense of self. And oh my goodness, similar to the semantic ambiguity behind the word mindfulness, there is semantic ambiguity behind the word interoception as well. Researchers often add things in there and take things away. For instance, does your ability to feel the sense of muscular work, is that interoception? Is your body awareness or your somatic awareness interoception? What is it exactly? For the purposes of today, anything you can sense internally regarding your internal physical self, we'll call that interoception. A lot of mindfulness techniques, traditional mindfulness techniques, draw attention or awareness to this internal state of self. For many, this is good, it can be very beneficial. It can improve attention, it can improve regulation, it can, it can improve acceptance. For others, this is problematic. It can lead to hypervigilance. It can lead to catastrophizing. It can lead to this endless feedback loop of what's going on internally. I mentioned earlier a term called open monitoring. Open monitoring is your ability to observe without judgment. There's a certain network in your brain called your salient network that is activated when you're practicing open monitoring. This is the same network of your brain that is activated when you are paying a lot of attention to the internal sense of self. So one thing you can take from that is yes, Perhaps a meditation where you're paying attention to your breathing is beneficial for practicing this, for for activating the salient network. But so is the ability to go for a walk and observe your surroundings. without judging them. Both are a form of open monitoring. So this is when I say that there's a lot of ways to do this stuff, there's a lot of ways to do this stuff. And when I say that it doesn't all have to be, that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be done in a way that looks like meditation, I think this is important. And this is important to me because (laughs) we're designed to move. Chris talked about how some of her students, they need rest. They want nothing more than to go lie down in that room that she used to have and have a moment. These are probably the same types of individuals that are gonna do really well with a traditional meditation practice. There are others for whom stillness makes them antsy. Trying to pay attention to that internal stuff creates more anxiety. So what happens when you tap into the movement? Can that start to create a balance in arousal? Can it start to tap into finding silence? So this brings me to this, this idea of silence. And all of the, I've talked a bit about silence and noise. I'm trying to find the book. Um, and I got all of that from this lovely book called Golden and a, the power of silence in a world of noise by Justin Zorn and Liam Ratz. I have studied mindfulness for a long time, read a lot about it. In fact, read full catastrophe, full catastrophe living, which is John Kabat-Zim's book on Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And I lecture on mindfulness to the U.S. Navy, uh, high-level guys, like captains, high-level guys and girls, captains and whatnot. And I found that their take on noise was the most relatable thing I could, I'd ever read regarding what are we actually trying to do? Again, noise is unwanted distraction. You have three different types. There's informational noise, which you get from your phone. There's internal noise, which you get from yourself. And there is auditory noise, which you get from the ambient environment. As I said in the very beginning, my perception of noise may be very different than your perception of noise, as it should be. When you begin to play with some of these ideas of mindfulness, particularly when you begin, and I mentioned open monitoring, the other form of mindfulness that comes up a lot is focused attention. Can you focus your attention on something? When you focus your attention on something, you're activating a different network of your brain. You're activating your central executive network. So when you activate your open monitoring network and when you ap- or when you activate your salient network and when you activate your central executive network, this is how you start to shift away from your default mode network, which, again, is just that internal chatter. Now, you need all three of these networks, and there are more brain networks than these three. These are just the three that are written about a lot and that are most applicable to our conversations. These three networks are what allow us to be creative, they, would, they are what allow us to self-reflect, they are what allow us to have a story, they are what allow us to learn, They are what is allow, they are what allow us to be present, be here, be right now. So what happens when you reduce noise? When you reduce either the informational noise, the auditory noise, or the internal noise? You create space. Space gives you choice. One of my favorite quotes about this comes from Victor E. Frankel. He was the man who wrote uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And what he says, said, he's passed away. But what he said was between stimulus and response, there is a space. And that space is our power to choose our response. And our response lies our growth and freedom. Awareness is the first step to change. Maybe you don't want to change. That's all good. That's great. But without awareness, you don't even have the choice. So this brings us back to what is mindfulness. It's the ability to observe without judging, without all that internal chatter. It's the ability to pay attention. How does this idea of movement fit in? I've already said we are designed to move. The definition of movement is an act of changing physical location or position. It's the act or process of moving. We developed brains so that we could move. The mind and the body are intimately intertwined and connected. Daniel Warpert, who's a uh, neuro, I think he's a neurologist, neuroscientist, neuroscientist, neuroscientist. He says in his TED Talk, I believe it's something like 85% or maybe as much as 90% of our brain is devoted to the planning and execution of, mo- of movement. A huge percentage of this is devoted to our ability to do this. And I am gesticulating if you're listening to the podcast. So maybe one of the best ways to tap into this idea of mindfulness is through movement. But this begs the question. What type of movement will give us that access? Does it have to be slow, methodical, highly nuanced movement? For some people, this is going to work really well. For others, this is going to work a whole lot less well. Again, strip away all of your preconceived notions of stuff. And we've got this idea of paying attention, of being able to observe without judgment. Through movement, there are a lot of ways to do this. Now, on the flip side, is this doing as many pull-ups as you can? Maybe, but maybe not. One of the modalities I did not mention when I gave the overview of exercise and where we are now is CrossFit. And CrossFit, I think, has done a wonderful thing for getting a lot of people active. It's a great community um, spot, way to, to really interact with community. It has a lot of good benefits. But their workouts are very focused on every minute on the minute or Performing as many reps as possible. And some of these goals can really take you out of the present because you're focusing on the next thing. What does that do for arousal? And again, I'm not suggesting this is bad. I'm just suggesting that maybe it's not going to create balance. So if you have, if you're Preferences is a modality like CrossFit or like high-intensity training. That's great, but finding something that regulates, that creates the balance is going to be probably ideal for you as a person. And maybe CrossFit or, or maybe high-intensity training isn't where you're getting your mindfulness. Again, there's so many different ways we can look at this. Movement is an opportunity to pay attention. It's an opportunity to observe. It's an opportunity to optimize arousal and to flow. It does not have to be that. but For those of us for whom that resonates, it can be that. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I look forward to seeing you for episode four, where we will dive into the movement side a little bit more. All right. If you have any comments or questions or anything of the sort, feel free to reach out. Thank you so much.